Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Happy Election Day. If you haven't voted already, I hope that you're about to. I hope that you're saying to yourself, oh, it's just a few more minutes or a couple of hours until I stop doing whatever it is I'm doing and I go and vote. I think that we all have to remember that people fought and died for the right to vote. And they did that because they wanted to have a say in their government's decision-making. We vote because we don't want other people telling us that we have to do things just because they said so. We don't want to live according to the rules of because I say so. I wrote about that in my book, Make Your Case. In fact, it's one of the reasons why going to court is better than solving problems in some other ways where you have a problem with somebody and then the resolution of your dispute is determined by who has friends in the highest places or who likes somebody the most, or frankly, just because that's what somebody feels like doing that day. In court, that doesn't happen. And frankly, to the extent that we can, showing up and voting for people who make decisions and expressing our views about how they decide to exert and wield their power. That's one of the ways that we can keep because I say so in check. I mean, for me, facts are important to me. One thing that's important to me as I cast my vote is casting it for institutions and people and ideas that consider facts and that make facts matter. You cannot solve problems by making things up. You can't learn new things if you are ignoring facts on the ground or facts as they exist. We have a lot of opportunities to come up with new ways of solving problems and discovering new things. And only if we acknowledge facts are we going to be able to do those things. For me, I'm really interested in outer space. That's not something I get a chance to talk about very much, but I'm very interested in outer space. And no, it's not because I feel like I need to immigrate there. It's because who the heck knows what it holds? It's so big. And that, in fact, is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to Anne Drian, my next guest. We spoke a couple of weeks ago. We talk about facts and science and space, but she's also going to remind you to vote if you haven't already. She is an Emmy and Peabody Award-winning writer, producer, and director who makes science and scientific curiosity real and meaningful and entertaining. She brings it home. She co-wrote the 1980 documentary Cosmos with her late husband, Carl Sagan. For those of you who are old enough to remember, that really popularized space and space exploration and curiosity And it kind of made all of that a part of the mainstream culture. She subsequently created, produced, and wrote the 2014 sequel, Cosmos, a space-time odyssey, and the most recent sequel in that series, Cosmos Possible Worlds, which is now available on Fox. Let me tell you something else about Anne. There are asteroids named after her (laughs) and her late husband, Carl Sagan. And on top of that... 
she made a mixtape for aliens and space about life on Earth. Welcome. It is such an honor and joy, and I'm so excited to welcome you, Anne. Thanks for being here today. First of all, what a fabulous welcome. I feel so good about being with you and and excited because I know a little bit about your work and uh, how how much you try to get to the facts rather than opinion and bias. And so I'm excited about this conversation. That is really music to my ears. I don't have an asteroid named after me, and I have it. Of course, I, I, I joked at the outset about this mixtape you made for aliens. Obviously, I'm referring to the Interstellar Message Project. Can you tell my audience a little bit about what that's about? I would love to. First of all, you're very young. So you may end up with an asteroid named after you. <laughs> and the best thing about those two asteroids, Sagan and Tria, is that they're in perpetual wedding ring orbit around the sun, which I find so romantic. And at least as romantic as that is the story of NASA's Voyager interstellar record which it was my honor to be the creative director of this project in 1977. And this was to send a complex message, each affixed to the Voyagers 1 and 2, the greatest explorers in human history, the spacecraft that gave us our first close-up look at the outer solar system and its moons, discovering volcanoes and moons and so much that we didn't know before they got there. But the best thing is that both voyagers, through a gravitational assist from the mass of mighty Jupiter, were flung out from the solar system upon completing their reconnaissance and taking the famous pale blue dot picture, Voyager 1. They are now the farthest objects ever touched by human hands. They have a projected shelf life of 5 billion years. And on board are 27 great pieces of the world's beautiful music from a great variety of human musical traditions, as well as greetings in 60 languages, 60 human language languages in one language of the humpback whales. 118 images of what it is to, to be alive on Earth, and a sound essay which uses the microphone as a kind of camera to tell the story of the history of the planet, of the evolution of life, of the development of our technology, and it includes a mother's first words to her newborn baby and the brainwaves and heart sounds of a woman newly fallen, truly in love. And it was my honor to be that person. So I'm very proud of it. There were many people involved. And I think 43 years later, it holds up really well because it is so diverse and so representative of who we are. So now those messages are somewhere in the outermost reaches of space. They have traveled further than anything else. Well, to us. Outermost to us. Outermost still, to us. 
still just baby steps away from our sun. I mean, they are at that place where the wind from the sun, the solar wind, these particles stop and the interstellar medium, the ocean of space between the stars filled with cosmic rays begins. And the Voyagers were so brilliantly designed that since they were leaving the solar system in two different directions, through the miracle of geometry, they have taught us the shape of our solar system as it moves through the galaxy. And ultimately, five billion years from now, when the Earth is unrecognizable, and when everything that we know now has changed beyond recognition, those two spacecraft will have completed perhaps 10 circumnavigations of the Milky Way galaxy. And just possibly, perhaps one of them or both of them will be flagged down by some spacefaring civilization should they exist. And they'll know the kind of music we made and the kind of feelings we had and what we were like in the beautiful June of 1977. What is the most compelling science-based evidence that there may exist life elsewhere? I think of it two ways. One is the sheer number of worlds. You know, in 1949 and before then, most members of the scientific community believed that the solar system was a great rarity, that very few suns, stars, had worlds. And it was actually the great Gerard Kuiper, an astronomer who actually boldly said in 1949, I think at least half the stars in the sky have worlds. And he has proven to be correct at the very least. Well, how many stars are there? There are a couple of hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And in the visible universe, we think there are a couple of hundred billion galaxies. Now think of how many worlds, how many planets, moons, minor planets, our sun keeps in a kind of gravitational embrace. It's really an astonishing number. If you count the cometary nuclei in the Oort cloud, that spherical shell halfway between our sun and the nearest star, about two light years away, you're talking about a trillion worlds for one star. So that's one thing that just says, you know, what are the odds that only here? And now there's a second, or actually two more blanks in this question that have been filled in very recently. The question is how difficult is it for life to get started on any given world? We have not a single example of life starting on another world yet. But we've begun to find intimations of the possibility, just the possibility, that life, as Carl predicted in 1963, could exist in the cloud tops of Venus. Something in 1963 that was thought to be nutty, but as of two weeks ago, new paper published bunch of scientists with some very strong evidence of the telltale signs of things that can be caused by life. They're not exclusively caused by life, so we don't know life is there. 
but it's really exciting news. And then we think of the other worlds in our solar system alone. You know, the moons, that, like Enceladus, that have subsurface oceans larger than our own oceans on Earth. The possibilities exist, but we have to look more deeply. We still don't know. And the third thing that we've learned is that life got started much more quickly on the early newborn Earth than anyone expected. We've now pushed the origin of life back to four billion with a B years ago. That's only because of what we found. Who knows what other evidence we've yet to discover, but will unfold in the future. So I don't know if there's life elsewhere in the universe. All I know is that sheer numbers of possibilities are so exciting. And also life's tenacity, life's ability to survive even the most inhospitable places on earth, in places we never thought life could be, life's tenacity. When you talk about life, don't we have to perhaps admit of the possibility that there could be some sort of sentient consciousness that's not wrapped in these kinds of bodies necessarily? If, if I understand you correctly, you know, you're saying we can't rule out those possibilities. You're absolutely right. Do we have any evidence for the existence of this? No. But if we know anything, we know that life is always more surprising than we can imagine. You know, I think it was Shakespeare said, you know, there's more in this universe than is dreamt of in your philosophy. Of course, could you have imagined a lobster if you never saw one before? or an elephant, or a snail, or, you know, any one of a zillion life forms that exist here. What do we know? We are just very young and ignorant, just starting out in this universe, which also happens to be quite young. And so, you know, the possibilities are great, but without the error-correcting mechanism of science, logic, the rules of argument, the rules of evidence, which dovetail so beautifully with what you do on your show. The only way we can hope to ever know these things is by applying this brilliant machine, which keeps us from lying to ourselves and lying to each other. We are terrible liars. And we have a tendency to want to believe things. But science makes it possible for us to, to wean ourselves from this problem and to get at what's really there. You know, what I just did is kind of emblematic of a tendency that we talked about a little bit before, which is that it is possible for people to speculate about anything. And we see that now, I think increasingly in the popular culture where people say, well, could it not be that X is true? Well, yeah, I mean, anything technically could be, but whether or not we accord it value depends on if there's evidence for it. Yes. Are you worried right now about the way that we talk about facts and the way that we process information and the extent to which opinions of all sorts have really been elevated to the status of, you know, being something that's concrete and fact-based? Does any of that concern you? Boy, <laughs> Boy, does it. You put your finger on it, Tanya. You really did. 
Does it worry me? Yes, because it was always true. We've always been like this. It's not like we're more like this than we ever were before. But we're facing challenges that are unprecedented in human experience. It matters what's true. Tragically, we've seen public discourse debased. We have seen you know, what should be the public discourse about each of us being informed decision makers in a democracy or in a society that aspires to be a democracy. It's critical that we speak a common language with each other, that we have some respect for the evidence. And I'm nervous, I'm afraid, I'm hopeful, but I'm also ah, like this, you know, very worried and concerned, but hopeful. When Cosmos, uh, or rather I should say, when the first installment of Cosmos came out in 1980, which you co-wrote with your late husband, Carl Sagan, it really changed the way that popular culture engaged with science and engaged with the idea of space and the unknown. The subsequent incarnations of the series have also been quite successful Do you think that audiences have become more or less curious in the intervening years? Well, the thing that makes me hopeful is that we have the means of communicating with each other at the speed of light, as you and I are doing at this very moment. Not only that, but the gatekeepers for who gets to express these ideas has become much, much greater. This is a wonderful thing. Not only that, but there's a coalescing community of people around the world who not only respect the method of science, but also respect the free exchange of ideas and information. And so on the whole, I think we're much better off. I'm 71. I grew up in a world which was apartheid, racist, viciously sexist, so that the intelligence of women was basically the nightly entertainment. Women can't drive. They're so stupid. They can't do anything right. And so this was corrosive, you know, for anybody, any woman who had a dream of actually expressing, you know, had something to say and wanted to say it. It was a world I would not go back to for anything, all the money on earth, because it was so excluding. And so what gives me a lot of hope is that, yes, there's always been pseudoscience and conspiracy theories that are not based in anything but our resentments, our projected fears, our own self-hatred, so much of that has always been a part of the human conditions for the last 10,000 years. We have a kind of post-invention of agricultural stress syndrome, where for a million years we were wanderers, we were hunter-gatherers, we lived in small bands. We had a good idea of how to treat each other, how to share, because we didn't want stuff to weigh us down. And here we are at a moment of intense inequity where we don't know how to share. 
We don't know how to take care of each other anymore. And a lot of us don't know how to take care of ourselves. And we are just in the process, in this technological adolescence. You know, I don't, as I write in my book, I was a mess when I was an adolescent. I was a really a total mess. Why were you a mess? I was coming of age in the 1960s. I had no discipline about the ideas, no ability to evaluate what might be real and what was patently false. I was a procrastinator, a dreamer. I was living in one of the most beautiful golden ages of music and drugs and all of those great things. And it was really distracting. I was a bad student. I was unfocused. And that's where we are right now. We're in our technological adolescence. I've had children uh, who are now grown. And all I know is you can't judge a person by the way they seem in their adolescence. And I feel the same way about our civilization that we will outgrow this. I hope we will. We must. Right now, we have to begin to grow up about our planet. That's our challenge. And we can't do that if we don't respect reality, if we don't respect those facts that we can actually ascertain and evaluate. And if each of us doesn't have the tools to tell when we're being lied to. And that's what science is. It's just that baloney detection kit that we need so badly. So what were the things that resulted in you evolving from the procrastinating, (laughs) uh, messy, unfocused person to the woman who now has an asteroid named after her and who really is on the forefront of media when it comes to communicating about science and facts and really making them digestible. You know, one of the great things about your work, Anne, is that I am not a scientist, but I really consume these because, you know, it makes it so real. You know, you make it so real. So how did you go from your messy, unfocused place to the place where you sit right now? Well, first, most of all, I think it was the love of my family, my parents, my grandparents, who really loved me. They were not special and they were not rich. They were not fancy. Uh, I grew up in Queens and went to public schools. And, you know, it was just a very ordinary, in a way, childhood. But my parents loved to read. My mother loved to write. My parents read to me. My grandparents loved me. And I knew that I I felt like I would do anything rather than shame them or disappoint them or hurt them by not manifesting whatever talents, whatever gifts I had. So that was one thing. And I think that was the fundamental thing that made me want to grow up into a productive adult. But the really, the the magical thing, really, if I can say, was meeting Carl Sagan and learning that you didn't have to give up your imagination or your sense of the romance of life in the cosmos in order to take the values of science to heart. So the reason I love my work is because I felt excluded from science. 
and I was not a scientist. And Carl really made me understand that it was understandable, that there was a way in, that we had to tear down that wall, which this scientific community was partly responsible for. We had to tear down that wall of the impenetrable jargon and the boredom and the tedium of so many science classrooms because there were great stories to be found in the history of science and in the natural reality of the universe. And uh, he made me want to get it right for him as a public figure, but deeply as a human being, as a father, as a son, as a husband, as a brother, as all of those things. It mattered what was true, not in a kind of punitive, icky way, but because the truth was good enough, more than good enough, and much better than the best lies we can make up. He inspired me to want to become that person for whom it mattered what was true. How did you meet him? Uh, you don't want to? I know. I love it. Oh. I love it. <laughs> it's the magical. It's the most wonderful story. I was friends with Nora Ephron, great writer, great director, wonderful human being. And she had a little dinner party at her apartment back in 1974. And I remember going with... Uh, the man I, I, I was seeing at the time. And before I even got into the apartment where the dinner party was, I heard this laugh that was magnificent. It was so free. It was the laugh of a man who was completely uninhibited. I thought, wow, that's a great laugh. And the door opened. There was Carl lying on Nora's living room rug with a bunch of other people with his hands clasped behind his neck and laughing. And I, that was the first time we ever laid eyes on each other. And we knew each other as friends and colleagues for years, for three years. And it was during the making of the aforementioned NASA Voyager interstellar message on June 1st, 1977, in a phone call, long distance phone call that we just knew we were in love with each other. What did you say? What happened? Oh, what did you say to each other that made you know this, if it's not too personal? Well, it was funny because, as I told you, we wanted to represent the whole planet, the music of the whole planet. And so I was looking for that piece of Chinese music that would be worthy as the only Chinese entry on the record. Well. China has a musical tradition of 2,500 years, a continuous musical tradition. It seemed like an impossible task. Further, I didn't know a thing about Chinese music. You know, what arrogance, what audacity to be, you know, selecting that piece. And I was going around to Chinese musicians and composers and musicologists. And finally, uh, I went to see this Chinese uh, composer at Columbia University. And he said, oh, no problem. I know exactly what the piece is. I was like, you do? That's impossible. And he said, no, it's a piece. It's almost as old as Chinese music, maybe 2,500 years old. 
And it's called Flowing Streams. And it's about our relationship to the universe. And it's performed, this performance is by the 95-year-old greatest virtuoso on the chin, a stringed instrument. And he was murdered six months later in the Cultural Revolution. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. I hope it sounds good, you know, because uh, this sounds wonderful. So he played it for me. It was thrilling. I went running back to my apartment and I called Carl in Tucson, Arizona, where he was giving a talk. And he wasn't there. And so left a message with the hotel operator. And he called me back. And I picked up the phone and I heard this magnificent voice. He had such a beautiful voice. And he said, I got back to my hotel room. And I see this message that Annie called. And I asked myself, why didn't you leave me this message 10 years ago? And my heart started to beat out of my chest. You know, we'd been alone on numerous occasions together. We never even gave each other, you know, a, a come on, look, or anything. There was no joking about it, nothing. And, um, and I said, well, I've been meaning to talk to you about that, Carl completely just as the line of a straight man, you know, like the line of a comedian, not really what I wanted to say. And then I paused and said, for keeps? And he said, you mean get married? And I said, yes, I'll marry you. And he said, okay, we're getting married. <laughs> and that was the beginning of our 20 years together. And they were 20 years where you loved each other and worked together and really created some formative works. What's it like? What was it like for you working so closely with someone who really was iconic, especially in a moment where I think women were not really given, frankly, there's much to be said that we still don't get our due still, as right, we should, right. but... Decades ago, it was much worse. So how was that? How was it for the relationship, too? It was a feast of joy. It was a feast of ideas. My friends called me Miss Bliss because Carl and I just knew every second together was precious. And, you know, we had this thing where even 10 years into the marriage, we would say things like, we can stay up together as late as we want. And we can, if we want, we can go down to the kitchen at three o'clock in the morning and make a snack. You know, we just had this almost childlike joy in being together. And we were together 24 seven because, you know, there'd be a few hours a week where Carl would go a few, like literally minutes away to teach his classes or to work in his laboratory. You know, we created contact, the motion picture together. We did Cosmos. We we wrote six books together, countless articles, speeches, and it was a joy. You know, it was, uh, for us, everything we did together, our children, our parents, everything was love. You know, we just knew. And I think it's also because neither of us believed in an afterlife. I'm not saying I know what happens when you die. I don't know. But Personally, I don't believe in an afterlife, and neither did he. And that's what actually intensified our sense of 
and the immensity, as he wrote, in the magnificent dedication of the book Cosmos, you know, in the vastness of time, in the immensity of space. It's my joy to share a planet and an epoch with Annie. And that's how I felt about him, you know, that that chance could be so generous to both of us. I'll never get over it. It was, it was the greatest. What does death mean to you? It means to me an end of thought, of communication, of experience. It's hard for me because I don't, you know, like, unless you're going to say, okay, well, every chicken and every squirrel and everyone has an afterlife. I don't get why humans who are so demonstrably genetically linked to every other life form on earth, you know, why there should be a separate set of rules for us. To me, it seems too much a projection of our wishes and not necessarily an apprehension of reality. You know, Anne, when you reiterate, as you just did, that you don't know, don't you sometimes feel like that more people should just say that when it's true? I mean, I I feel like part of what we're doing right now is living in a moment where everybody is certain that they are certain of everything. They are certain of their expertise. They are certain that they are right. They are absolutely certain. And I feel like that certainty is really dangerous uh, because it's not leaving open the possibility of anything that we don't know. And frankly, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. I mean, look at where we've come even since you and Carl did the first Cosmos. Look at all the things that we've learned since then. Is all of this certainty killing us? I couldn't have said it better than you just said it. It's really, and think about certainty. Think of the fanatic. The fanatic thinks they have to kill you if you disagree with them. Whereas, You know, there's no reason to do that. We're finding our way in the cosmos. We're so, as I said earlier, so young, so ignorant. We know so little. And that certainty is a kind of wall between us, a weapon against others. We don't need it. That's why I love science. The methodology of science is saying, remember, we could be wrong. We will give the highest reward to you who can prove us wrong. And then when you prove us wrong, we're not going to kill you. We're not going to torture you. We are going to change the way we understand this particular aspect of nature. That's the only way forward in a heavily armed, armed to the teeth with not just personal, but nuclear weapons. We have to begin to respect each other and to admit what we don't know. That's the strength of That's what you can get from Galileo's first look through a telescope in 1609 to interstellar missions in 1977. That's not even 400 years. Whereas for the previous 10,000 years, we were basically clueless as to the larger universe, to the grander, vision of nature. Science delivers the goods. You can't lie your way to Mars. You know, if somebody in any step in any mission, if they lie, there are redundancies to protect against that, but things can go horribly awry. 
we have to be careful about what we claim is true. So as you were saying, Tanya, I thought you said it so beautifully. It's a failure of the imagination to think that you know everything. There's so much more to life and experience and nature than we know. You have such a beautiful and remarkable curiosity. I mean, it just really, it springs forth from you now. I'm reminded of a story about you where your curiosity was not always rewarded. And it's a story about a question that you asked when you were in middle school about yeah. pi, 3.14, the symbol. See, I'm a lawyer. I know some math stuff. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you sure do. I know a little math stuff. Uh, tell us about that story, because I think that it's so instructive for young people whose curiosity is not always supported. Young women, young men, young people of color, young people who don't grow up in families of means and sometimes don't have access to, you know, some of the same resources where they're not encouraged to dig into and think deeply about the world. Tell us that story about you asking that junior high school teacher the question about Pi. So she was teaching us about Pi and she, as you correctly stated, said that the ratio of the radius to the circumference was uh, 3.14 out to many places. She only did it to a few places. And I had what was, you know, what I call a mathematical experience. I was like 13 or 12. It was like a religious experience, but it was mathematical. My whole body began to tingle. I began to tremble. I raised my hand, you know. And I said, do you mean to say that this is true for every circle in the whole universe? And she said to me, don't ask stupid questions. And I burst into tears as I was, it was my tendency to do that in those days. I fled the classroom. I never wanted to go back. I did go back after a day or two because I had to, but I was never a math student. And I was not a science student until many years later because of this humiliation. And I know so many people have had similar experiences. That's why Carl used to go to the night before school would begin. He would give a special talk to all the teachers in our county to thank them and to express his respect for the sacred task that was before them. He would go to kindergartens, lower grades, and he would turn them children into planets and moons of the solar system because he understood that we're born with a scientific curiosity and an excitement about why things are the way they are. What are the great scientists like Newton and Einstein? What's so special about them? Because in adulthood, they ask the questions that come so naturally to every child. But they take those questions seriously and actually pursue them. Why does an apple fall the way it does? It's such a basic thing. Think of how the universe was opened up to us because a genius had the respect of this child's question to pursue it and to understand it mathematically. 
that's what we have to do with our kids. They're so brilliant, so curious. Their minds are sponges, so ready to absorb and so trusting of what we say. It's really a sacred task for every parent, every teacher, to make sure that these embers, these little sparks of curiosity become a flame because that's how we find our way in the darkness. Isn't it remarkable when you think about how all of the work that you've done and that you and Carl did together created a more receptive, friendly environment for that curious kid. Whereas that middle school teacher said to you, kind of poo-pooed your question, you now made the question asking fun. You know, you've really, you've corrected that. Like I, I know, you know, I may kind of speak more in these terms of universal energy and back and forth. It may not be precisely scientific, but I will say this, you did a lot to shift the pendulum so that curious kids feel safer and uh, excited about their curiosity and not derided for it. So I think that that's just one of your many, many contributions. Tanya, thank you so much. Nothing you could say could make me prouder. I think that uh, it's undeniably true. But before we go, Anne, tell me what you are most excited about right now. Well, right now, I'm most excited about seeing a sea change in our country. There were signs this past spring of a great awakening, long overdue, on the part of people who could not see what was going on and suddenly saw. And it's my most fervent hope that two weeks from now, or election day, we'll see that awakening turned into votes and into a nationwide mandate to wake up and start facing our responsibilities to each other and to the planet. This is my dream. And there is nothing more important than doing absolutely every single thing each of us can do to make that happen. I could not agree with you more. Everyone who's hearing this, Anne Drian just told you, you got to vote. That was her way of saying, you must get up, you must make a plan to vote, and you must vote. You know, just before we go, I, I can't let you go without mentioning, picking up on what you just said, like that awakening that we were having last spring, which is really, for a lot of people, a reminder, you know, because if you're talking about issues of justice and racial justice, these are things that uh, a lot of us have been grappling with for a long time. And the same kind of uncurious, sloppy thinking that scientists are up against It's the same thing that people who are fighting for social justice, you know, it's the same uncurious, sloppy thinking of the racist. I completely agree. So all of these things are connected in some way. They are connected. And that's why, you know, that I I always go back to Carl's pale blue dot image and what he wrote, because in that image is the absolute height of our science, our high technology, our ability to be 
out by Neptune, the outer solar system, and look homeward and see that little one pixel Earth, that is the greatest indictment to the racist, the fanatic, the fundamentalist, the polluter. That is it. That's our true circumstances in the universe. Tiny world. We need to deal more kindly with one another and to protect that pale blue dot, as Carl wrote so beautifully. That's this generation. And when I say this generation, I mean all of us have to get involved in that challenge because there are more generations to come and they deserve a world as beautiful as the one that we inherited. Tanya, I, I can't like say goodbye because I don't want this to end. I could talk to you forever. I don't either. I could talk to you forever. I feel like I got to let you go. Well, I feel like I've made a new friend. I definitely feel the same. And I hope you'll come back on the show. And I hope that we can hook up in real life when it's safe. Because honestly, you are simply remarkable. And this conversation touched me a lot. I can't thank you enough for your time, Anne. I'm really grateful to you. I'm so happy that we had this conversation. And I just, anytime you want, I'll be back. So great. So great to meet you. It was wonderful to meet you. I'm going to hold you to that. Andrea, thank you for being with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 